Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. I want to share uh, a word that I've shared several times over the last several years, and I felt prompted to just bring it back today. I was uh, last, last week, I was teaching our students about living in wholeness. And then um, yesterday, I was with, at the School of Transformation or the, the conference, com- Transformation Conference with Ed Saboso. And uh, I, I, we were supposed to speak on global transformation or local transformation. And the last session, I really felt the Lord prompt me that we should speak, that we should talk about wholeness. How many know the kingdom within you becomes the kingdom around you? You can't restore your city if you're not restored. Broken people reproduce broken things. And so I, I really felt like I was to share this message again. And so I want you to turn to Acts chapter 3. And forgive me if you've already heard this message. Well, I don't know if you can forgive me for that, but um, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, uh, Acts chapter 3, you'll, be, um, you'll probably be very familiar with these verses. Verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom he used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he gave, him, he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold. We are pastors. But what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright, and he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Could you repeat that with me? Walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. He was, help me, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Did you notice there's something missing? He was walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the gate beautiful of the temple, at the gate of the beautiful of the temple, begging alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I want to say that this message was actually inspired several years ago when I went through a season of confusion. And um, several of my, I had several friends, you know, we pray for people all the time, and many, many people get healed, as you know here. And some don't, and that's just the truth, that's the way it is. And uh, people write all the time, why do you think people don't get healed? Like, if I knew that, I'd be a quadrillionaire, right? <laughs> I'd definitely write a book on it. <laughs> and say, all the things that I know that Bill doesn't know about healing, you know. <laughs> if I could heal everybody anytime. Could you put, like, uh, 50 minutes on that clock for me? And, um, and so, you know, we, we see lots of people get healed. We see lots of people not get healed. And, um, and when people, you know, don't get healed, I mean... It troubles you, especially if you're, they're your friends, your acquaintances, or your family, right? The other dynamic that I've seen 
happened here over the 20 years that I've been here and 20 years before that in Weaverville, we prayed for a lot of sick people there too, is that sometimes I've watched people get healed. And when I say healed, I'm talking about documenting their healing. Like they've gone to the doctor, they've done, run tests, and they're completely well. I've seen people get completely healed, and two years later, the disease come back, and even people die from the very thing that they were documentedly healed from. And that's troubling. It's really troubling, again, when it's your friends or your acquaintances or your family. And about several years ago, in an 18-month season, I had three very close friends. One of them was a student who was healed. We all rejoiced over their healings. They, they, she was, they were healed. And within 18 months, these three people who were completely healed, and again, I'm talking about document healings, not I raised my hand and I got healed, not I went through chemo and I got healed. I mean supernaturally healed and documented by doctors. That these three people, within 18 months of each other, they all died from the very thing they were healed from. And years ago, I was listening, I was at a conference in Portland, Oregon, actually, and I was listening to this man preach. I was probably 26 years old, a youth pastor, and, he's, and he was preaching on Jacob wrestling with the angel and walking with the limp. And he said this, never trust a man who doesn't walk with a limp. I had no idea what that meant, but I thought it sounded really cool, and I preached it for years. Literally, have no idea what it meant. Never trust a man who doesn't walk with a limp. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> you ever preach something you have no idea what you're talking about? Just sounds really cool. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, no, I haven't, actually. <laughs> well, I went through this season when my, my friends died, all, especially the frequency of them dying from the thing they were healed from. And it, ins it actually threw me into kind of this, I don't know, desperate place in my life. And I began to wrestle with God because I feel like there's two ways to live. I can either reduce my theology down to my experience, or I can raise my experience up to my theology. And I began to say to God, especially by the third one, God, this is not what your Bible says. This is not right. And as I was doing that, like not even thinking about it, I'm thinking that this is what the man told me about 35 years ago. Don't trust a man who doesn't walk with a limp. I began to wrestle with God and say to God, this has to change. This is what you said, and this is my experience, and I am not changing what I believe. I'm changing my experience. And in the midst of that, I, I began to, to study, I felt like the Lord told me to study the miracles of Jesus. Now, John said that if all the miracles that Jesus did were written down, the earth couldn't contain the books itself. So we know that Jesus must have done hundreds of thousands of miracles. But there's 27 miracles in the Bible in which the gospel writers specifically tell you how Jesus did the miracle. And I began to study the miracles of Jesus, just the miracles that Jesus did, especially the ones in which the gospel writers told us how Jesus did the miracles. And I, I was thinking about this from the, from the experience I was having with my friends, that sometimes you obtain things 
that you can't sustain. That sometimes you obtain things you can't sustain. Now, obviously that happens all the time in finances. You buy a house and you can't make the payment. You buy a car and by the sixth payment you're trying to get rid of it. But I think there are things sometimes in, your, in the spirit that you obtain that you actually can't sustain. And I was thinking about how my friends obtained a healing, but for some reason they couldn't sustain it. So as I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm studying the miracles of Jesus, I come upon Matthew chapter 8, and this is the miracle that Jesus did in Capernaum when a centurion comes to Jesus and he implores Jesus and he said, my servant is deathly sick. And Jesus said, I'll come to your house and heal him. How many of you remember this miracle? He says, I'll come to your house and I'll heal him. And the centurion says to him, now a centurion is obviously, he is a Roman-like general over a hundred soldiers. The centurion says to Jesus, a Roman centurion, he says to Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. All you need to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to this man, come, and he comes. So you don't have to go to my house. Just send your word, and my servant will be healed. Now, and Jesus turns to him and said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Now, let's think through this for a minute. The centurion's reasoning for Jesus not having to go to his house is that he, the centurion, is a man under authority. In other words, he's under Caesar. And when he tells a man, go do that, or go out to war, or go attack that city, that man does that, or that group of people do that, because all of Caesar's authority is in the centurion. Are you following me? So it seems like he's about to tell Jesus, You don't have to go to my house. I know you're a busy man. I can see the crowds around you. Just send one of your disciples. I send people out with the same authority I have because I'm a man under authority. And you think he's going to tell Jesus, send one of your disciples. I'm good with that. My my servant will be healed. But instead he just says, send your word and my servant will be healed. First of all, I'd like to just say that this this guy is already understands quantum physics. That there is actually no such thing as space and time in the spirit. But the second thing I'd like to point out is that this man knows that like, the, like himself, like the centurion, when Jesus speaks a word, that there are angels that go out and carry out his word and make sure that what Jesus says, those angels get done. Psalms 105 verse 20 says, that the angels hearken to the voice of God and they carry out his word. But the second thing I'd like to point out is that I'm in this time of thinking through what does it take, how did Jesus heal people, and and why did he heal them a certain way? And what I learned from the centurion is that the only thing it takes to heal someone is Jesus speaking a word. Are you following me? Are you bored? What I'm getting at is that if it only takes a word to heal someone, then if Jesus does more than speak a word, then he's doing more than healing the person physically. 
And I'd like to point out that the man at the gate, beautiful, he walked. He got physically healed. He leaped. He got emotionally healed. And he praised God. He got spiritually healed. But did you notice that the church only saw him walking and praising God? Did you notice what was missing? Leaping. I want to talk tonight about leaping. Because I feel like the church globally has become a Vulcan planet with Spock-like pastors <laughs> who demean the soul and wonder why people are poor and sick. Here we go. I'm going to skip ahead for just a minute. Third John, John wrote this. The apostle John wrote, Beloved, I pray that, you would, that, you would, that in all respects you would prosper and be in good health. Listen to this. Even as your soul prospers. I always read it like this. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you would prosper and be in good health even as your spirit prospers. But in this year of wrestling with God, I was reading that verse, and I felt like, you, you probably have had the same kind of experience, I felt like the word soul stood up on a battlefield and said, I'm a soul man. <laughs> and I began to realize that if you oppress the soul, remember, beloved, I pray in all respects you would prosper and be in good health, even as your not your spirit, your soul. I began to realize that the soul is the foundation for prosperity and health. And if you oppress the soul, how many understand you're going to be sick and broke? Okay. The healings of Jesus. Leprosy was the cancer of the first century. Lots of people had leprosy. And not only that, it was a biblical disease in that if you had leprosy, you were considered unclean and there was Levitical laws about what you had to do about that. For instance, if you were a leper and you needed to come into town for some reason, well, first of all, you were probably relegated to a, a, a village, uh, a leper colony. But if you did have to come into town, while you walked down the, the road, you had to yell, unclean, unclean. You can imagine what kind of shame that must have brought to you. Nobody ever touches lepers because leprosy was thought to be contagious through touch. And so almost everybody, almost every leper, and by the way, there was lots of lepers healed in the Bible. Probably the most common disease that is actually talked about in the Bible is Jesus healing blindness and lepers and, and, and also lame people. And so I've studied all the stories of lepers who were healed, and there was one common denominator in almost every, almost every healing of lepers. And, and, and one of them is in John, uh, Luke chapter 5. I'll just tell you about it. The leper comes to Jesus, and he said, If you, Master, if you're willing, please heal me. And Jesus says, I'm willing. And the next thing he does is what? Touch him. Now, interesting thing is, seldom did any leper ever get healed when Jesus touched them? The man in Luke 5 didn't get healed when Jesus touched him. Jesus touches him, and then he says, go show yourself to the priest. On the way to see the priest, nearly every leper gets healed. What's my point? What does Jesus have to do to heal lepers? Speak a word. So if he touches them, if he sends them to the priest, can we 
Can we agree that Jesus is doing something besides physically healing them? I propose that Jesus touched them because the leper has never felt human touch in his entire life. When Jesus reaches out and touches him, you understand that Jesus is braving the contagious disease. When he touches the man, he's healing his soul. On the way to see the priest, he gets physically healed. And when he sees the priest, how many understand his spiritual life is restored because it is the priest that is in charge of making sure he doesn't come to church. What I'm getting at is that Jesus didn't just heal the physical problem of leprosy. Jesus made sure the man walked and leaped and praised God. Are you with me? In uh, my favorite healing in the entire New Testament is in John chapter 9. Why don't you turn there? It's actually in two of the Gospels um, tells this story. In Luke's Gospel, Luke brings in a little bit more detail, and he said this man, he names this man, he's blind, and he, and he names him Blind Bartimaeus. And Jesus is walking down the street, and the crowds are following him, and people are shouting, Hosanna, and this one man is screaming, this one blind man, this blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's kind of, he's kind of like screwing up the party. And the disciples are trying to calm him down. And Jesus says, bring him to me. So the man comes to Jesus, and Luke records that Jesus asks him, what can I do for you? I mean, the guy's blind. I'm thinking, probably, he's thinking you could heal him. And the man says to him that I would receive my sight. And this is John's recollection. As the man passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. As, as Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. A blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must, work while the, we must work the works of him who sent us as long as it is day, for night is coming when no man can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spit on the ground and made clay from the spit and applied the clay to his eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. I, I love that. I love that miracle, and I always thought it was weird. <laughs> so here's a man. He's totally blind. Now, typically, if you're blind or, you, or, or you've lost one of your senses, typically your other senses are kind of amplified. <laughs> so the man is talking to Jesus, and, he, and Jesus said, what can I do for you? And he's like, that I'd receive my sight. And while he's, while he's interacting with Jesus, he hears, <laughs> and it seems to be in the vicinity of the master. And the next thing that happens is not only does he hear something, but he feels loogies running down his face. Thank you, Jesus. And then Jesus says to him, now go wash in the pool of Siloam and you'll be healed. Now, I don't know how far that pool is. It, it might be a block or it might be five miles. Who knows? But if you're blind, it matters. And you can imagine the man is trying to find the pool with loogies running down his face. And people are like, what happened to you? Jesus is healing me. Okay. 
Have you ever thought of that? Like, why, why did Jesus spit on him? I mean, what does Jesus have to do to heal this man's blindness? Help me. Speak a word. So why spit on the guy? And I can just imagine the guy like, thank you, Jesus, you know? I'm feeling better already. Can you imagine coming forward in a prayer line? Like, what do you need? I'm blind in my right eye. And I, I've read that for years, and I'm like, I, you know, Jesus has done, he does weird things. People are like, God would never do that. I'm like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> so when, in this wrestling year with God, I'm thinking about, okay, one thing I learned from the centurion, that if Jesus does anything besides speak a word, he's got to be doing something besides healing the sick. Because all he needs to do is speak a word. So I'm thinking, I'm praying. And all of a sudden, I read again the John, the John's account. And, John, and, and the disciples say, Who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? And I'm thinking, okay, the disciples' mindset is somebody did something wrong, and that's why the boy's blind. And then I remember Deuteronomy 28 says, from verse 1 to verse 14, God says, If you serve me, here are all the blessings that will happen to you. You'll be blessed when you come home. You'll be blessed when you leave. Your children will be blessed. Your grandchildren will be blessed. Your, your flocks, your herds, your orchards, everything you touch basically will turn to gold. From 1 to 14. From verse 15 to verse 68 God says, and here are all the curses that will be on you if you serve other gods. Verse 28 of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy says, and your children will be born blind. Thank God for the, old, for the new covenant. I want to say that right now. How many understand that if you see a blind man and he's trying to cross the street or a blind woman trying to cross the street, even if you weren't a Christian, you most likely in most countries you're going to help them cross the street. But in first century Jewish culture, if you had a child that was born blind and you were in the marketplace holding your little baby who's born, remember he didn't fall off a horse, he didn't get run over by a chariot, he was born blind. People in the marketplace would spit on him. Because they're saying, I agree with God. You served other gods and you paid for it. You got what you deserve. Your child is blind. Jesus took the thing that cursed this boy his entire life. And he uses it to heal him. So the thing that broke his soul... Jesus used to heal his eyes so that the man would walk, leap, and praise God. Years ago, I was right here in the sanctuary. I, I, I preached on a Sunday morning and got down 
with the team, and I was praying for people. We were praying. You know how it is right after service. We pray for whoever wants prayer, and there was lots of people, and obviously whoever preaches gets the longest line. So here I am, got the long line, and I'm you know, praying for people and praying, and I just try to keep my head down so I'm not thinking about how many more people there are. And an hour passed, and everybody was gone. All the prayer servants were gone. All the maintenance people were gone. It was just me and three ladies. And have you ever been done, but you're not done? All the pastors can say amen. And you know, it was Sunday morning, and it was 49ers were playing, and I have this gift of intercession that I have to intercede for them, so I, I have a duty to get home. And so there was three ladies, and I was I seriously, joking aside, I was completely fried. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to give them magic dust prayer and send them home. You know what the magic dust prayer is? It's kind of like you just say, in the name of Jesus. What's your problem? Okay, well, in the name of Jesus, you know. I mean, I'm not Catholic, but maybe. Who knows? Maybe they got a corner on something going on. And then you say to them, you know, you don't say, well, try it out. How you feeling? You just say, if you didn't get healed, come back tonight. You know, and that means tonight I'm going to really try. So I give the next person the magic dust prayer. And then I tell the next person, she's standing right there on the line waiting. And I, I, I motion for her to, you know, come up. Let, let me pray for you. And as she begins to come up, she is, she's obviously in agony. She's in, in lots of pain. And she's moving really slow, and her whole face just says agony. So this little bit of compassion just popped out of my heart. <laughs> and I thought, I should probably try. So I asked her what she had, and I, I, honestly, to this day, I don't remember what she had. But, she's, but I remember this detail. She said that she's had, she, 13 years ago, she's, she's had this for 13 years. I don't know if it's like, uh, it affected all of her joints, arthritis or, or something, you know. And she said she had level 10, 10 pain for 13 years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And she said this to me, I haven't slept in 13 years. So I'm like, okay, you know. So I put my hand on her. And I really am. I'm like, okay, I'm going to really connect, and, and I'm really, I'm really going to pray for her. And when I put my hand on her, I immediately heard, I'm not going to heal her through you. I'm going to heal her through her husband. So I'm like, okay, well, this is different. So I say to her, um, I tell her that, ma'am, I'm, the Lord told me he's not going to heal you through me, but heal you through your husband. Is your husband here? You know when people don't talk, but they totally talk? I said, is your husband here? And she goes, yes. I said, okay, why don't you go get him and bring him back here and we'll have him pray for you. Okay. You, you know when you say something with boldness and all of a sudden it just scares the crap out of you and you're trying to act totally bold, but inside you're like, oh, her expression scared the bejeebers out of me. I'm like, uh-oh. So I thought there was just three people in the sanctuary, but she walks to the back, and I mean, in utter pain, it takes her several minutes to get back there. I have one more person to pray for, and you know how Jesus said, watch and pray? So I was watching while I prayed. And the lady finally gets back there. I can't hear them. There's way back in that corner where the exit is. A man is sitting down in a chair. And I can tell that they're in an argument. I can't hear them, but their body language, I can tell they're in an argument. So finally, she, gets, she comes back. She gets up here first. That's how slow he's walking. 
And, and he comes over by the door right there. And when he gets just about to the beginning of the stage, he yells, what do you want? <laughs> Uh-oh! <laughs> liar, liar, pants on fire, liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> My heart is racing. I'm like, I wish I would have just went and watched the 49er game and interceded. He says, what do you want? Well, I, there was, these steps weren't here. I walked down there, and I, I'm walking towards him. He says, what do you want? Just like this, what do you want? I said, I want you to pray for your wife. He goes, I don't pray. Uh-oh! <laughs> I don't pray. Uh-oh, uh-oh! Well, I'm walking over there. He says, I don't pray. I walk over there. I grab him by the hand. <laughs> and I'm pulling him. Now, he's not, I'm not dragging him. I'm pulling him. And I go, you do now. <laughs> and I walk him over to the center, and I put his hand on his wife's shoulder, and I say, pray this prayer. And he looks at me. He doesn't say no. He looks at me like, I told you I don't pray. He didn't say it. He tells I said, pray this prayer. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so I, he, I said, Jesus. He said, Jesus. I'm like, okay, he's used that name before, obviously, in some other context. <laughs> I release healing on my wife. He looks up at me as to say too many words. I say, I release. I release. He's not looking. He's looking at me. I release. Healing. Healing. On my wife. On my wife. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. <laughs> and before I can say anything else, he moves over here. He just jumps back over here. And I, I'm, I'm standing in front of her, and I have my eyes closed, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking of things to say. <laughs> you know, at first I'm thinking, if this woman has any improvement, it will be the greatest miracle since Lazarus came out of the grave. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so I'm thinking of ways to fix it. Come on, you know, let's be real. And I, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, like, I was thinking of saying to her, like, Miracles are instant, but healings take some time, like four to six years, you know? And while I have my eyes closed, and she's standing right there, and while I have my eyes closed, she says, not to me, to herself, I think my, the pain in my right arm is gone. And I open my eyes. Now I know, listen, I start at the School of Supernatural Ministry. I understand I'm supposed to say, well, try it out. But I'm like, it'll come back. I'm thinking, it'll come right back. Don't worry, it'll be back. So she says, she's not talking to me yet. She goes, I think, wow, I think the pain in my right arm is, it feels like it's gone. And so I open my eyes, and she said, my left arm, I think the pain. And then she looks up at me, and she says, I think the pain in my arms is gone. And I say, are you sure? And he says, you're kidding. And then she goes, yeah, yeah. And the pain, the pain in my legs, it's gone. I think the pain in my legs is, and then she starts, now she starts weeping. And she's like, the, she, oh, the pain in my legs is, it's all gone. And I say, are you sure? And he goes, you're kidding. And then she starts, oh my God, oh my God. The pain in my back, my legs, it's all gone. I say, are you sure? And he's like, you're a kitty. 
Then she spontaneously, with no instruction, takes off running. And she's running back and forth. And she's like, oh, the pain in my body is gone. And she's weeping and weeping. And I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, you're kidding. And she's running around up front, woo, woo, taking laps. Well, the rest of that story is they grab hands right here. Like this is 20 minutes later. And they walk out those double doors. The only thing you needed was a freaking moon. Sunset. And I'm standing here. I, just like this, totally. I have forgotten about my intercessory responsibility to the 49ers. And I'm standing here, I'm completely stunned. I have no idea how this lady got healed. None whatsoever. He got no faith, I got no faith, and she's been in trouble for 13 years, so she obviously has no faith. And she walks away healed. It's a true story. I get in my car, and you, my mind is just spinning. I'm like, what? You know how, like, like you see something that your mind cannot process? I'm like, did I just see what just happened? I get in my car, and I'm driving home, and I say out loud, I'm only one in the car, I say out loud, God, why did you heal her through him and not me? He said, he broke her, he can fix her. <laughs> he broke her. So I said, how did he break her? She said, he, he said to me, do you remember she said she had this disease for 13 years? I'm like, yeah. He said, well, 14 years, the year before she got this, he had an affair with another woman. She found out, he repented, she forgave him, but she never trusts him. So I healed her through him. So not only would she be physically healed, but she would be healed through the man she didn't trust so I could restore trust in their relationship. That's amazing. And I begin to realize that God wants people to walk and to leap. He likes leaping. And praise God. I read this earlier, got ahead of myself, but John wrote in 3 John 2, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you would prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. You know, for hundreds of years, the church has taught people Spirit good, soul bad. You'll remember, like, for a thousand years, believers, leaders, lived in monasteries so they wouldn't stimulate their soul by being involved with people. And they got there for, what, 500 years or something? Whoever knows church history would know. I mean, they were there for hundreds of years, and then they realized that they could stimulate one another, so they took vows of silence do you understand what they were doing? They were trying to oppress their soul so they could be spiritual. How many of you have been in church? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> We've probably, if you've been in the church very long, you've all heard things like this. Oh, that's just, that man's in the flesh. He's just in the flesh. Oh, it's just the soul. That soul thing right there is trying to get attention. Dang. <laughs> David wrote in the 23rd Psalm, and the Lord restores my soul. 
Psalms 34, 2, my soul makes a boast in the Lord, and the humble will hear it and be glad. This is people before they were born again. Deuteronomy 4, 29, from there you will seek the Lord, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Deuteronomy 6, 5, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, your heart, your spirit, your soul, and your might, your body, spirit, soul, and body. <laughs> Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you're my God, and I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh, uh-oh, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. These are people who love God before they were born again. Pete, you're just in the flesh. Well, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. See, here's the problem. You teach people to oppress their soul, and then they become sick, and they don't prosper. It's funny to me that there are as many people sick in the churches outside the church, and I think it's because we teach people Sunday after Sunday how to take care of their spirit. People all over the world have personal trainers and go to the gym to take care of their body. And we're like, yes, you should take care of your body. It's the temple of the Holy Ghost. But we don't spend five minutes teaching people to take care of their soul. In fact, we reduce people and make fun of them when they even do anything to take care of their soul. I'd propose that your spirit needs stuff, like the Bible. <laughs> you need to read your Bible. You need prayer. You need connection with God. You get the idea. You need fellowship. I mean, Sunday after Sunday, we teach people, here's how you take care of your spirit. And we should, by the way. I propose your body needs stuff, like food, sunlight, air. You know, if someone falls in a pool and they're drowning, you're not like, you just need air. You read your Bible, you wouldn't need air. Must have missed home group this week. You airless person. No, we know. Listen, that doesn't matter how much fellowship you get, how many times you read your Bible, how long you pray. If you fall in the pool, you still need air. Can I get an amen? amen. And if you jump in to help them, they typically don't go, thank you very much. Help me. Thank you for helping me get air. Typically, you have to give them the five-fold ministry to get them out of the pool. Right? They will take you with them. <laughs> I propose that your soul needs stuff. Okay, here we go. I didn't say wants it. I said needs it. I, pr I propose that your soul needs affection. I propose your soul needs attention. You just need attention, you. If you read your Bible, you wouldn't need attention. I propose that all the reading of the Bible in the world and all the prayer in the world won't keep you from needing attention because you were wired. Uh, it was Brene Brown who said, you are neurobiologically wired for connection. You actually need attention. I talked to a man who was a prison governor in another country. And he said, and I forget how many days, but it was days, like 47 or 48 days. He said, if you leave a man in isolation 
And I'm sorry, I wish I had the number, but it was not two months. It was shorter than that. If you leave a man in isolation for like 47 days, he will come out insane if you give him no visitation. We were born for connection. We were born for attention. We are neurobiologically wired to need affection, attention, significance. And listen, if you're taught you're not supposed to get it, then you don't have a proactive plan to get your need met. So then you have a reactive plan, which is why people go around with this big sucking sound. They come into the room and they suck the air out of the room and everyone, like, don't have them come over. They take over every conversation and you're like, they just need attention. Yeah, you need attention too. And most of the people who demean the people who need attention are overfed. You know, how many you know every preacher has more people than they need loving on them or at least hating them or at least give them attention. <laughs> I'm saying it's easy to be up here in front of a thousand people and, you know, a hundred thousand people watching and saying, you just need attention. Because you have more attention than you could possibly get. I mean, the soul table is full of food you couldn't eat in a hundred years. That doesn't mean that everyone else has the same feast every day. In Luke chapter 7, why don't you turn there? There's a story. We're, we're going we're gonna to finish with this story. It could only take about an hour. <laughs> Verse 37. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, that is not the normal word sinner. It means sexual sin. Like, probably, most likely, she was a prostitute. And she... Um, there was a woman in the city who was a prostitute. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, let me just like set the stage for you. Let me give you just a little background so you can understand how like anti-culture this is. Counterculture. First of all, women in the first century in the days of Jesus were considered dogs. Second-class citizens. No, no, no. Not second-class citizens. Slaves to men. They were, there, was three, there was four levels to coming into the, sanct, to, in, into the synagogues or into the temple, and the, the women were relegated only to the outer court. They were not, it was illegal to teach a woman the Torah, the Bible. The most famous priest at the time, a rabbi at the time said, I'd rather burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. A woman could not be a witness in a court case because she was thought, because of her gender, that she was inherently a liar. Are you following me? She, she, she was, when she married, most likely she would, her marriages would end in divorce because men did not marry women forever and they believed in polygamy so typically if she did marry the man she liked she was typically sharing him with many other women and if her husband didn't like her for any reason he just they called it no cause divorce they just threw her out the door like a rag 
Jesus, of course, was born from a virgin. Now, how many virgins have given birth to someone in the history of the world? One. In probably what? 12 billion people. So the chances of having a child as a virgin is one in 12 billion. How many of you think that people believe that Mary got pregnant as a virgin? Joseph didn't. You're not even getting where I'm going. I'm simply saying that in the first century, if a woman got pregnant outside of marriage, they stoned her in the streets. The fact that Mary was alive was because Joseph, if you will, saved her. Are, are you following me? He came in and married her or she'd be dead. So Mary was always had a stigma on her. You remember that, that the Pharisees would say to Jesus, we were not born from adultery. And the connotation is, you were. What I'm getting at is, had you noticed that wherever Jesus goes, prostitutes fill the rooms and break into the places where Jesus is eating? And Jesus is acting like this happens every day? So this prostitute comes into the Pharisee's house. Now think about how uneasy this is for, for, for the Pharisee. His name, his name is Simon. So Simon invites Jesus over at the height of Jesus' popularity. How many of you know the Pharisees and Jesus commonly did not get along? And almost every time Jesus went to a Pharisee's house for dinner, he typically had the Pharisee for dinner. <laughs> he would make statements like this, very common, like, you Pharisees are whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. Pass the potatoes. <laughs> so I would like to give Simon a little credit. Like, he has guts here. He invited Jesus and 12 disciples, including Peter and Thomas, to dinner. I would think that he's probably, how many of you ever had someone, you know, that you really, really respect and maybe a famous person come to your house for dinner? How many of you have ever had that happen? Yeah, and you, you clean the house a little bit more and dust things you haven't dusted for a long time? And you say to the children, if you spill the milk tonight, I will kill you. <laughs> like, you typically want things to go well. So I imagine, you know, Simon invites Jesus over with 13 other people. That's a pretty big meal. And it's Jesus, and he has a reputation. And I'm sure that the other Pharisees are probably not very happy about Simon bringing this guy over. Like, what are you doing? Like, that's, you know, that's a Democrat. You're a Republican. Like, shouldn't be eating with these guys, you know? So... They all sit down for dinner, and we don't know how long they've been there for dinner, but a, a prostitute comes in the house without knocking. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, Simon's thinking, I hope Jesus doesn't think she got here early. <laughs> you have to think through that for a minute. And she doesn't stand in the corner and weep. She walks right over to the table, kneels down with a hill of Astrid's perfume, and she begins to pour the perfume over Jesus and wash his feet, and she's weeping. And Jesus is still like, pass the corn. Jesus is acting like, no big deal, what's the problem? And now she's kissing his feet. And Simon thinks to himself, if this guy was a prophet, he'd certainly know this woman's a prostitute. And Jesus answers his thoughts. Now that's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> so when Jesus is around, you just go, hum, hum, hum. 
Now, there's one more rule you need to know. See, there was 245 commandments in the Old Testament. But by the time Jesus walked the earth, the Jews had added a total of 617. And a hundred of those new commandments were against women. Another one of those commandments are this. If, a, if the only time a woman could sit at the table with men is if they were her, her sons or her husband. If another man came into the room to eat with them, the woman, even if it's at her house, had to leave the table and eat in another room. So this woman isn't even supposed to be in the room with men who are eating. There's 14 of them eating. So Jesus, has, she's, she's wiping his feet with her tears. She's, she's making a big scene. She's weeping. She's kissing his feet. And Jesus just keeps eating. And the Pharisees like, man. And so Jesus says to, this, to Simon, and Jesus answered Simon. <laughs> Jesus answered Simon. Simon didn't say anything. He just thought it. <laughs> Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one will love him more? Simon answered and said, I, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said, you have judged correctly. And turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, you probably can't pick this up in English, but he isn't saying, hey, did you notice this woman's in the room? He's saying, I want you to look at this woman because another one of the hundred commandments that they added was you were to ignore the presence of a woman and pretend that she's so irrelevant that she isn't even in the room. So when Jesus says, do you see this woman? He's saying, I want you to acknowledge that there's a woman in the room. And then he, said to, then he says this to them. And turning towards the woman, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. And by the way, that's another one of your commandments that you added. You're supposed to wash my feet. And she, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped him with their hair. And Simon, you gave me no kisses. The connotation is, you should have. But she, since I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who's forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. What's the point I'm making? I'm about to land this plane. The Pharisees had created a Vulcan planet with Spock-like disciples. They had oppressed everything that looked like emotion. Do you know why Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus five minutes before he raises Lazarus from the dead? He didn't weep because he didn't know he was going to raise him. He wasn't weeping like, you know, oh, things are so bad, I'll, I'll cry too. He was weeping to connect with the women who were weeping because it was illegal for a man to weep in public. When Jesus wept, he was saying to every mother's daughter, I get you, I agree with you, I value you, and I don't like this Spock-like planet that we've created in the name of God. And Jesus was pulling, if you will, emotion, leaping. Come on. He was pulling, leaping back into the church. He turns to Simon and said, and you, she gave me, she kissed my feet, and you gave me no 
kisses. And the connotation is, you should have kissed me. You should have wept over me. It should have been you down on your, on, on your knees, weeping and kissing my feet. And she's the one who got it right, even though she's a prostitute. It was Paul and Peter who said, greet one another with a holy kiss. I believe God wants to restore holy affection back to his church. That we aren't just to keep, teach people how to walk and how to praise God. We are to teach leaping. Well, let me say it a different way. Robin Williams, who obviously ultimately committed suicide, said, people say that the hardest thing in life is being alone. He said, it's not true. The hardest thing in life is being with people who make you feel alone. Years ago, <clears throat> I was walking through the sanctuary. It was in the afternoon, and it was uh, right after school was over in this sanctuary, right in the back. And there was four or five girls just standing in a, in a circle. They were just talking, and they were students of mine. And I, I came through that door, and I looked up, I was kind of like in a hurry, and I looked up and I, and I saw the girls, and I had this thought in my mind, I'm gonna tell those girls, you're beautiful. I just, it was just a passing thought, like, I'm gonna say, you're beautiful. And as I got closer, and this all happened this fast, as I got closer, I had this really strong thought. If you tell those girls they're beautiful, they'll think you're sexualizing them. And immediately, I had a vision in my mind, and I was taken back to my daughters, my two daughters' teenage years. I have two beautiful daughters who are both married to wonderful men and have children, and they're in happy marriages, so they live happily ever after. I need to tell you that because of what I'm about to say. And so when my daughters were teenagers, both very beautiful, they went to a youth group, and their youth group used to have alternatives to the dances because the dances were so sexual. And the youth pastor wanted them to have experiences with the opposite sex as they, got, as they got to be older teens, but didn't want them in the dance kind of atmosphere. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So he created alternative things that were kind of like double dates, and he encouraged them to ask one of the other girls in the youth group out with friends, and they would go to this event with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You get the idea. It was kind of like a thing like, hey, let's teach them how to have connections with the opposite sex in a really nice, safe environment. And, and I actually thought it was a, a really great idea. Obviously, there's side effects to that, but it was, it, was, it was pretty risky. And my girls were in the same youth group, of course. My oldest daughter, Jamie, was 18 months older than Shannon. And so when they started this thing, you know, uh, immediately the phone started to ring. And, you know, we would run to the phone. Of course, the teenagers always run to the phone first. We didn't have cell phones in those days. And Jamie would pick up the phone, and the, the man would say, young man would say, is Shannon there? Is Shannon there? Is Shannon there? And as we got closer to the event, the phone would ring more often. Is Shannon there? Is Shannon there? Is Shannon there? And the night of the event, obviously, Jamie and Shannon, they've been all over the world together. China, Mexico, lived in Mexico together on an orphanage, went to China, smuggled Bibles together. I mean, lived in the same room all their lives, totally super close. And so when Shannon would date, would come to pick her up, Jamie would, you know, greet her at the door and, and see her off and pretend like everything was well. And then she would run upstairs 
throw herself on the bed and cry. And I'd run upstairs after her and throw myself on the bed next to her. And, I, and I, she would say, Daddy, Daddy, am I ugly? I'd say, no, baby, you're beautiful. Daddy, how come the boys don't call me? I'd put my, her face in my hands as she wept. And I'd say, because you're so beautiful, you intimidate the guys. Don't tell Shannon. Then I'd say, get your best dress on. Daddy's going to take you on a date. I took that girl on more dates than I took my wife on when we were going dating. I'm exaggerating slightly, obviously. For all the years she was in high school, not one time did anyone ever call and ask her out. Now, we see now God's hand in the whole thing and how God had preserved her for the man of his dreams. And it all makes sense. You know, after Marty, <laughs> you know, BC, you know, AD. But I'm in the sanctuary and I'm thinking about those nights. Daddy, am I ugly? Daddy, what's wrong with me? Daddy, how come I don't get phone calls? Daddy, why does no one want to date me? What's wrong with me? Baby, you are beautiful. And I started thinking, what if Jamie didn't have a daddy? What if Jamie doesn't have a daddy? Or what if Jamie doesn't have a daddy who runs upstairs and throws himself on the bed next to her? He says, you were beautiful in those tender years when ladies are hungry for the affection of a young man. And when men, young men, are hungry for the affection, they're learning how to be men. They're learning how to be ladies. What would have happened if Jamie didn't have a daddy like that? And I started thinking about how many girls, and obviously guys at the time were talking about young ladies, how many young ladies have a daddy? That's even in the home. Much less emotionally intelligent enough to say, baby, you're beautiful. No worries. And I started thinking about what would happen if Jamie didn't have a daddy and she stepped over the line and broke some of her virtues to get the affection that she needs from a young man. What if she did it more than once? Because how many know your repetition becomes your reputation? Guess who's not going to for sure, guess who for sure is not going to get the holy hug in church? It's the girl with the reputation. Now, I was going to walk by those girls and go, you're beautiful. But all of a sudden, I felt a militant love come over me. And I said to myself, as long as my heart is pure, I will not let the politically correct world tell me how to treat the daughters of God. And I stopped where those girls were. And I said to the girls, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you girls are so beautiful. And I just want you to know that if I was your daddy, I'd be so proud of you. Like, oh, the pastor Chris, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no, listen, every one of you, you're so beautiful. I just felt I was to tell you that. Like, I don't know why, but you're so beautiful. And from that day on, they followed me around all year long like chickens. (laughs) Now I know why they call them chicks. 
I feel like the world is starving for affection. The church is, and I, I'm one of them, and I, and I believe in, in having standards and virtues. I believe in teaching people right from wrong. I don't apologize for it. But I want to tell you something. Most people that are doing something wrong, it isn't because they don't know it's wrong, even though they might be carrying a banner, but it's because they're starving for affection. And they come to the church and we're like, they're so, you know, they dress to the nines. They're maybe dressed, what we might say, inappropriately. And it's like, you know why they're dressed like that? Because they need attention. Not because they need judgment. I don't care what anybody thinks of me. Why did you spend an hour in the mirror? I bet most ladies in this church spent at least a half an hour in the mirror this morning. And most of the guys did too. And then we walk out and like, I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care. Oh, I got a gray hair right there. Got one in my nose, too. We spend an hour a day trying to look beautiful and trying to convince ourselves we don't care what other people think. And I propose we are obsessed with what other people think because we were wired for connection. And then we demean people in the name of being spiritual. And I'd propose that God's the most emotional guy in the Bible. If God didn't want you to have emotion, you wouldn't have it. You'd be like, Spock. Well, that doesn't calculate. And I'd propose that God is bringing leaping back to the church. You know, I, I wanna, I, I've never shared this part publicly just because I didn't think of it when I was in the podium. But I wonder if the Toronto blessing was the beginning of the Lord restoring the soul of the church. I don't know what people are doing there. They're so emotional. They're on the floor laughing. Gosh, that shouldn't be happening in church. I mean, who laughs in church? You laugh when you get out of church. You don't laugh in church. And then other people are crying simultaneously. It's like, what is that? Oh, I started to laugh. And then started the whole world crying. Gosh, they sung about it, but it's happening in our church. And when I'm preaching, people are laughing. Others are crying. And everybody's mad about it. God wouldn't do this. No, that's because they didn't do it on your Vulcan planet. They've never done this on Vulcan planet. And I'd propose that maybe God is like, let's exaggerate this for a while just to stir them up. I remember we were in Weaverville and Bill had come back from Toronto and he didn't share, he shared a little bit about it, not much. That's kind of Bill's thing. He's always like, I have to get it in me before I give it to them. And so he was shared, he shared a little bit with us. My wife's leading worship. Kathy was our main worship leader for a while. She's leading worship. And during the worship, she falls over the keyboard with her breasts on the keys. And, you know, there's only 200 people in our church. So it's like, you know, and there's only like four instruments. So it's pretty obvious, like, and she's laughing and she's trying to find the off button in the keyboard. And Bill walks over and turns the, the keyboard off and she falls over on the floor laughing. And I'm like, it's my wife. You guys don't know my wife, but my wife is like stable. 
Like, I'm the emotional one. I'm the one who cries. I went through menopause. She never did. She's like totally stable. All the guys know, all my, all my staff, they know. Like, Kathy's like, not emotional lady. And she's like laughing, ha, <laughs> drunk, totally drunk. I carry her to the car. We get her home, she doesn't cook, she lays on the floor laughing. I'm like, order pizza, this is the only way we're all gonna eat, you know? And my kids are all, what's going on with mama? I have no idea, I didn't cause it and I won't take credit for it or blame. The next Tuesday is our elders meeting. So we're in the elders meeting, it's seven o'clock in the morning, it's, there's like 12 of us, about eight of us actually, and Tom goes, and he's, we're talking about what happened to Kathy, and we carried her out, and she's like laughing. And, and Tom goes, I don't think that was God. And, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm glad it happened to my wife, otherwise I wouldn't think it was either. <laughs> um, you know, so various things are happening. And of course, Bill's doing Bill. You know, Bill's like super gracious, and he just has a really kind way of looking at you, and you feel stupid for anything you said that was stupid. You know, like, okay, I'm stupid. Next Sunday, we're in, the, we're in the theater, right? Bolted down seats. You know, with the seats that pop up, you know? Bolted down seats. Tom always sits four rows back. While we're worshiping, the Holy Spirit hits Tom with lightning. This is the guy who said, I don't believe that's the Lord. He's down on the floor, and he's getting electrocuted, completely electrocuted. And his whole body is like, he's a six foot four skinny guy, and his whole body's vibrating, and he's going, ah! This is like Mr. Heady, brainy guy, kind of Baptist guy, you know? I'm two rows behind him, so I get up, and I'm standing there, and, and the seats are bolted down, so you, you can't give him any room. So he's like, he's killing himself against the chairs, and I stand over him, and I go, I don't think this is God. And he goes, Valentin, shut up. <laughs> he never lived that one down. For years, I say, I'd walk in, hi, Tom, I don't think this is God. All of his kids got blasted. We had to carry his kids out like two weeks later. And while I'm carrying, helping him carry his kids out, I don't think this is God either. Valentin, shut up. And the Lord was just healing people's souls. And we're like, where is this in the Bible? I'm like, I don't know, somewhere in God does whatever he wants to do. Portion. <laughs> and people would come out of those laughing times. I literally like, have you, you know, you, have anybody experienced this at all? Like at least you watch other people do it? And you're laughing so hard they make you laugh. Like you're like, <laughs> you're laughing like, and you're like, hey, hey, I don't got the thing. I'm laughing at them. <laughs> People being carried out. My grandson wrote me. My grandson's so cool. He just decided to follow the Lord. Like. <laughs> he wrote me today. Why does it ask me if you want to download new software and you say, not now, and it goes, do you agree to this? I don't know, not now. I'm preaching. He writes, Papa, I got so drunk last night. I'm thinking, oh no. Next text, 
I asked God to touch me, and last night, my RGP was praying for me, and my eyes rolled back in my head, and I was out cold for two hours. And then I got up, and I couldn't walk. Then after two hours laying on the ground, my RGP picked me up and carried me out into the fire tunnel again. <laughs> I'm having so much fun. This is my grandson who wasn't walking with the Lord a month ago. He's drunk, as you suppose. And I'd propose, and I happen to know his story, and I'd propose, I'm watching him the last 30 days. It's probably been maybe 40 days. I'm watching the Lord just heal this young man from 10 years of rejection and brokenness. The first time he fell down on the ground was just a month ago, and Havila was preaching, and she called him out, and he fell down on the ground. And he looked at me, and I can't tell you what he said because it was personal, but about his personal life. And he goes, and all the bitterness is gone. That's what he says with tears running down his eyes. And Papa, all the bitterness, it left me. What's God doing? I'd propose that he's doing what he did at Simon's house. He's bringing back the kisses. He's kissing his bride awake. And we're all like, well, let's analyze this. Have you ever tried to analyze romantic love when you're 10 and you're watching your parents like, and you're like, dad, why do you do that? Well, I love your mom. Dad, please don't ever love me like that. I saw what you were doing with your tongue and I wouldn't want you to be doing that to me, you know? It's like, it's not logical. <laughs> Sorry, too much information. We're streaming too. I was talking about French kissing your wife in case you, were, in case you weren't sure what I was saying. I should clarify some of the folks outside of California. I'm saying, have you, have you, man, shut up for a minute so I can finish my message. Have you ever tried to explain romantic love to a 10-year-old? <laughs> You're looking at me like, no, I've never even attempted that. Well, let me read you 1 Corinthians 13. When, you get all, when I get done reading this, you're going to totally understand why I was kissing your mom like that. No, you won't. It's a whole lot like Song of Solomon where she's chasing him and he's chasing her. Have you seen my baby? Have you seen my baby? And he's like a, you know, he's like a, a gazelle. He can jump over a wall. <laughs> And, and he's like, and she's got a navel like this and a, and a neck like that. Now, I won't go into all the detail, but my point, is, my point is, you read Song of Solomon totally different as a 20-year-old than you did as a 12-year-old. That's my only point. I'll, okay, I'm stopping. <laughs> stopping. I'm just trying to say, when you try to come to God, everything is logic and reason. And what verse is that? And how did, that's in the Greek, and the Hebrew doesn't say that that way. It's like, they've never practiced it. Like, why don't you just get a kiss? I don't know why they do that. You will. I remember, my, I remember Jason saying, Dad, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know how people love women like that. And he was 12. I said, it, it'll happen. How do you know? Trust me. 
And at 16, he came into my room at 1 o'clock in the morning, and he said, Dad, it happened to me. I said, what happened to you? <laughs> I'm asleep. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. He said, Dad, what are you doing? I'm sleeping. <laughs> Dad, come out here. I want to talk to you. What, what happened? He goes, it happened to me. What happened? What you told me in the truck, it happened to me. Oh, Lord, what did I tell you in the truck? <laughs> He's trying to tell me that he experienced romance, that he experienced love. He hadn't kissed her. He hadn't touched her. He was just telling me it came alive, that irrational thing that makes you want to connect in a way you've never felt before. Okay, we'll just end right there. <laughs> Other things are coming to me, but we are streaming. <laughs> Why don't you stand? I just want to say it this way. Your heart can take you places your head ain't going to go. If you can understand your entire relationship with God, then how many know that he wants to do more than you can ask or think? And your brain's limiting your relationship. So I want to, and mine too. So I want to pray for us. All y'all, including me. And all y'all. If you're watching by Bethel TV, I'm praying for y'all too. No matter what country you're from, what planet you're on. I mean, we may be having some intergalactic people like check in on us. You never know. That, that was strictly a joke. That wasn't part of our cult. <laughs> being funny. Holy Spirit. Come on, put your hands out here. I, I want to I challenge you. Just say, Holy Spirit, just touch me any way you want to. I'm my neighbor too. And Lord, I pray that the way you touch me, it would be contagious, like a virus in which there is no inoculation. And I pray all my family would catch it. And especially my family that doesn't believe in you. I especially pray that they would catch the Holy Ghost virus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.